I didn't want the cure for cancer to die in someone's lab somewhere. And it's, I could see how easily it would happen. One of the things I've always been fascinated with is that a true entrepreneur builds something that's bigger than themselves. Hello and welcome to The Future of Work, the podcast that looks at, you've guessed it, the future of work. It's brought to you by Wonder for their blog, Chaos and Rocket Fuel. Wonder are productivity and human behavior specialists who use technology to help us humans on our digital journey from disruption to transformation. I'm Doug Folks, and along with Wonder CEO Claire Haydar, we regularly meet up with industry experts and mavericks to get their take on work in the future. This week, we caught up with the University of Maryland's Chief Innovation Officer, Julie Lenzer, and we'll find out exactly what an innovation officer is shortly. Julie's fascinating role is charged with fostering and deploying innovation to drive greater economic and social impact from the university's faculty, their students and alumni. Two of the main areas she works in are protectable IP and technology transfer. Prior to joining the university, Julie was appointed to lead the Office of Innovation and Entrepreneurship within the US Department of Commerce. She's also an award-winning serial entrepreneur, sought-after keynote speaker and author. Julie, you have possibly one of the most fascinating career intersections. Like when I think of your career, it's, it's a Venn diagram. That, that comes up into my mind and, and kind of like the, the different things that are intersecting there is a combination of academia, technology transfer and startups. But one of those things that kind of differentiates those startups is very much startups that have protectable IP at their core. Talk to us a little bit about how you got here and whether you very deliberately crafted this intersection. <laughs> I, I wish I could be uh, get, take credit for being so smart. <laughs> and when in reality, uh, my career has been incredibly serendipitous. Um, and one of the things that I always say is that I always follow the thread. And that's what's brought me here. So I am a, I'm a geek by background. So I have a degree in computer science. I built a software company and then cashed out of that in 2005. And so I came to this as a accidental entrepreneur, honestly. And I kind of feel like my whole career has been that way. We did develop software. We, uh, we had a large uh, Fortune 100 client who paid us to de de develop it, and then we retained the ownership for it, which was a great, great business model, believe me. Uh, but uh, so I had IP, it was protectable, and then I got recruited to start teaching a class for mid-career women to help them start companies off of intellectual property. And prior to that, I had no, I had no interest or no exposure into technology transfer and so it was back in 2005 when I started uh, digging in to try and teach these women to start companies. Julie, I'd like to um, say hello and welcome. Very nice to meet you. I'd like you to imagine I know nothing about protectable IP and I can't spell technology transfer. And can you just explain what it is to me, please? 
Sure, sure. And trust me, that's where I started. I always used to tell my students who were way smarter than I was, I said, well, you need to tell it to me. How would, what would Julie understand? So um, intellectual property comes in, it comes in many forms. And in fact, uh, I would, I would bet that anybody who's ever written anything didn't know that they actually hold intellectual property because anything that you write has a copyright to it in the United States. And so it can be as much of you hear intellectual property and you think it's a, it's a patent, which is, uh, we have the USPTO that if you have something that's novel enough, that's that's different enough, and that's they can protect it with a patent, which essentially gives you a 17-plus year monopoly on the ability to practice that or to develop or to deliver that uh, product in the way that you described. Um, but, you know, in, and what the whole form of technology transfer was created because the federal, our federal government in the U.S. spends, um, I think this last year, uh, the president put $131 billion into his budget for research and development, R&D. And back in the 80s, there was a, a, a law passed called the Bayh-Dole Act that, uh, that said that we should try and get something out of this, this research more than just the research. We should try, and universities can now, if universities get money from the federal government to do research, we now can own whatever um, intellectual property comes out of it, and we should try and market it. And so it's a way to, to get more out of our research uh, and development dollars by turning these ideas actually into products and getting them out into the market. Doug, just before you move on to your next one there, Julie, I specifically wanted us to weave that, you know, into the conversation because I can distinctly remember, I mean, you know, these are terms that are very familiar to me now, but going back to 2009, when, you know, you led that program that I was selected to be a part of along with the other um, 11 women who were selected to be on it. And I mean, that was my first ever time to the US. And I remember sitting in some of those classes with you and the other um, instructors and trainers that you guys had, you know, built into that program to work with us. And I just, it was such a foreign system to me and to what, you know, I'd grown up with as the norm in South Africa. And even then, you know, you know, that program propelled me into a life in Europe and even in Europe, um, there's, there's shades of technology transfer, but it's, it, it definitely is not at the level of sophistication and scale that it's happening in the US. And that's why it's such an incredible system that is backed up by, you know, federal funding. It was something that I had never been familiar with either. And yet, you know, we've been doing research and development at universities and at federal labs for, for decades. And so it was a new concept to me. Julie, your title is Chief Innovation Officer, which sounds amazing. What do you get up to on a daily basis? I was brought into the University of Maryland uh, essentially to unleash innovation. And we have great ideas coming out of our research. We've got students that have great ideas. And uh, so I was there to reduce the friction that it takes to help them take a good idea and to get it out into the marketplace. And then also to reduce the friction of bringing in external partners in to collaborate with our students and our faculty and our alumni. And so um, I'm really just a great big connector and enabler. Uh, so I have um, in my portfolio, I have our tech transfer office. I have our statewide small business development. Center. I've got an um, autonomous, uh, like a drone incubator. Uh, and we also have a research park where we've got 
about 6,800 people come to work every day. So the weather, when you get your weather forecast from NOAA with the U.S. government, that comes out of our research park because that's where they do that. So it's a, it's a great great variety of, of tasks that I have, and I think that's what makes it so engaging for me. I love that your title is, is Chief Innovation Officer and you're taking all of these things, but you said something very interesting there now, and I just kind of want to segue into that a little bit. It's your job is about removing the friction. Can you break down for us what some of those recurring friction points are that you're persistently breaking down? Sure. Uh, so this is my first foray into academia, and I've been here for four years. And prior to that, I was in the federal government. And so talk about two two places that are are you know known for their bureaucracy and uh, and you know just being difficult places to to navigate. And of course, every time I get frustrated, somebody looks at me and said, "If it was easy, anybody could do it." Okay, true. Um, but the cultural, I think um, what's what's really been interesting at the university particularly is, and I, I usually, when I talk about this to audiences, especially if they're in academia, they totally get this image. It's three big mean dogs fighting over one toy because there's just a lot of things in conflict. So on the one hand, we are, you know, a top, a, an R1 research institution. And so research integrity is really important, which means that the integrity of your results have to be unquestionable, uh, which makes total sense, right? Um, because then you're a trusted research partner. We're also funded by the state. So we are taxpayer funded. So we have to have a lot of transparency and everything has to be up above board. And we have to make sure that we're doing the best on behalf of our taxpayers. Well, and the third little piece of that is that um, the, the way that our intellectual property laws are, are structured, the way our system is structured, is that by taking intellectual property and creating a company out of it, a researcher who has created something really fantastic um, that he could actually, he or she could actually make money off of that invention. And so we're creating in some ways private wealth. And so all three of those things can often be in conflict. And so having to deal with uh, the conflict of interest, both institutionally and individually, uh, has been really challenging. Uh, and then, you know, there's new, as we start to look at like companies, we do a lot of work with companies like Google or the Gates Foundation, and their their objective or their perspective is that we should just release everything that you create should be released to the public domain or, or sent software out onto open source, which is which is great. But then our model of, all right, how do you monetize that puts that a little bit on, on its ear. And so we're having to pivot and really rethink about what does this mean? What's our real objective? And so at the University of Maryland, we are known as the, we're the terrapins, which is a turtle, um, a big turtle. It's actually a terrapin. I shouldn't call it a turtle. And um, we, we, we used to do the fear the turtle was one of our big things, which is kind of tongue in cheek, right? So we started this campaign called Fearless Ideas about getting people thinking about really cool ideas. Well, my job is to activate those fearless ideas for transformational impact. Julie, I want us to, to zero in on academic research itself. Do you believe that academic research is a critical component to the long-term competitive advantage of any country? 
Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think it's it's crucial. I mean, so if you look at um, increasingly other other countries are making um, bigger and broader investments in research than the U.S. And uh, I'll, I'll use China as an example. Um, they're very different. They're not a capitalistic society. So the government actually runs and owns everything, but they're putting a lot of money into really disruptive, leading edge technologies. And what that does as a country is it it's building on, it used to be that our value was all in our manufacturing or in our, our um, farming and things like that. And as that, as the industrial age has come along now, it's, it's the pace of change has just, just skyrocketed. And so staying ahead of the technological curve and coming up with these new ideas, one, we can apply them to our own, in our own country to make things better for people. I mean, that's, that's what a lot of these technologies can do to either combat global warming or to, um, or to help feed the hungry. I was just speaking with somebody um, yesterday at our university that runs something called NASA Harvest that uses satellite images to detect um, different agricultural issues and help. And their, their goal is to end hunger. Uh, end hunger. And um, and that those are the kind of things, I mean, as the world turns, we still have not solved a lot of these problems. And so... Um, that is that is that is crucial that we as a as a country especially um, really lean forward in innovation. If it is so critical, do you believe that the U.S. needs to change? So, I mean, you shared with us that the president has actually invested a significant um, budget into this. Do you believe that that is still not enough, and even more should be invested at this point in time? Uh, so our our research expenditures have actually gone down over time. So yeah, we're even I think five percent down since two thousand eighteen. So our our research dollars seem to be kind of dropping, uh, and and so yeah, I do believe that that we have to invest in it. But we also have to invest downstream in how do we take these great ideas and get them out into the world? Because at the end of the day, that's where that's where the value is. It's great to discover, um, you know, make these these wonderful discoveries, and I'll. I'll you know, I could share one. One of the things that I've been getting into uh, lately is called quantum computing. And it is absolutely has the potential to 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 disrupt everything. Uh, and uh, so I've been starting to learn about it. It's very deep science. It's still very nascent. Uh, but it has such an it could have such an impact and it could get, give us as a country a competitive advantage. But there are still more that we need to do looking at our policies and looking at, you know, how do we support these businesses and how do we get capital into the hand? Because many of these these technologies and these early stage companies, that's one of the challenges with tech transfer is that the technology is often so, uh, so young and so undeveloped that it, it requires time and capital to really get it into market. And that's there's a gap there. Julie, IP-backed startups seem very elusive and out of reach to many. If I was an ordinary, non-academic individual who knew nothing about this world, but I genuinely had a passion to solve major problems, but I just didn't want to be the inventor, how do I get involved? What do I do? 
Yeah, so tech transfer offices are would love to talk to you and um, take you through their list of technologies, believe it or not. But, but that's but how do you even know where to go? Uh, we've actually had so our researchers, researchers at universities, are really uh, incentivized to publish their work, and so technical journals around topics that you're interested in. Sometimes they're a little hard to read because they are very technical and academic. But if you find something in a journal that's interesting, chances are you can, the person who invented it is right there. You can find out what institution they are and find out if that technology and learn more about it, find the patent for it and see if there might be an opportunity to work with them. Um, A a great example is uh, we had one uh, researcher who found a way to make wood as strong as steel. And he he also makes uh, transparent wood. He can make wood transparent. And his article came out about this in Nature magazine. And within days, within hours, he had people reaching out to him. He had an unsolicited term sheet sent to him from Silicon Valley for $1.2 million to invest in his company. Um, now, wow. yeah. And, and so from our perspective, we actually said, no, you're too early. This is still just very, very nascent. You need to, deliver, to develop this more. If you take investment now, you'll be giving away a, a lot of opportunity to create value for your, you know. And so, so we worked, continue to work with him within the university to get more research grants to further the technology. And then he and another partner, there's actually now two spinoffs from his company uh, right now. Julia, I've got a, little, a bit of a question. It's a bit of a, it's a follow-on, really, when you started talking about quantum computing, the, the, your wood researchers. Do you find that at the University of Maryland that you're doing things more there, you keep it in-house, or is there a lot of times where you're collaborating or your researchers are collaborating you know, with other like-minded people all around the globe? I think it's a both and, uh, you know, researchers, um, we have a lot of collaborations with different institutions, hospitals. We do a lot of work. I just had a meeting this morning talking about how we're working on pediatric medical devices with Children's Hospital because a, a lot of other institutions, whether they're uh, hospitals or even just other uh, universities, oftentimes they'll bring resources that we don't have. And so we, we do like to collaborate quite a bit. And, um, and then from the commercialization perspective, you know, depending on the type of technology, sometimes the inventor wants to spin it out into a startup or sometimes the, the, the actual technology is more suited for a startup because they can go out and get small business grants uh, to help further develop it. And then other times it's a technology that's mature enough and an industry that's mature enough that it can be licensed by a large company and put into, put into service pretty quickly. You know that at Wonder, we all about work. We live and breathe on a daily basis. In fact, this podcast is the future of work, and the work that, you, you know, that you're doing is going to have a critical impact on that work. Are there any examples or any areas that you'd like to sort of talk about that, that would really impact work? I mean, I think you're exactly right. Uh, everything, in, and if this, you know, these last few months of the pandemic haven't shown us that work is shifting, um, then I don't know what has. But, uh, you know, we've got, uh, I think the collaboration is becoming easier as the digital divide is is narrowing, not that it's gone. Uh, but I think that uh, the collaboration and being able to, to share information about what you're doing so others can build on it um, 
you know, I think is really, really critical about about this, you know, particular work and uh, and the willingness to go, you know, it's changed. So I was a computer science major. You you all develop software. The world is very different from when I developed my software to what you do now. And um, just even the idea of of I was programming on Python last night uh, for my master's in machine learning that I just started. And, you know, the idea that it's all open source, it's um, I think that what we'll see, though, out of that is that even, you know, greater uh, advances in, in, in technology because of our ability and willingness and, and the tools that we have to, to work more collaboratively and open. Julie, I have a question for you. You've sort of t- spoken, you've given us a few little snippets of things that, that you're involved in. Could you tell us about one or maybe two startups that have actually spun out of UMD and, and maybe paint a little bit of a picture of their potential impact on the economy and certainly jobs in the next few years? Yeah, I mean, so we've got some really, uh, really exciting technologies that are coming out. Uh, just a couple of the, we have an anti-aging cream called Blue Lean that you can get on Amazon that came out of a different type of, she was looking at something completely different. She was looking at a children's disease, um, dermatological disease, and found that this property of this this uh, what, that she was using could actually uh, re- reverse aging. Uh, we have another uh, re- professor that has cured MS in mice. So that could be really, you know, and it, and it may not work in humans, but it's, it's got potential. And part of my job is to make sure that if this is a viable solution for multiple sclerosis, that we see it to its end and get it out in the market. One of the, the really exciting ones that uh, around quantum computing is called IonQ. And I believe they've raised about um, oh, maybe $88 million so far. But what's fascinating about this is that this came out of the professor Chris Monroe wrote a paper in a journal and a local uh, a local investor from NEA uh, came to him, read the article and said, you need to start a company around this because nobody else is going to create this. You have to help produce this because the university is not going to produce things. They're just going to keep, you know, doing the research. And so IonQ was born and they've already grown to, I think there's 50 people. They're just adding another 25,000 square feet. They're building a quantum computer that can rival uh, Google, uh, what Google's doing. I mean, they're, they're head to head with some of these large companies because it's just a unique technology. And so if you're not familiar with quantum computing, essentially what quantum will do is the, the speed of the, the ability to parallel process information will be exponential. And so um, things that you can, we can't solve now because it just takes too long and too much computing power, a quantum computer could do it in a second. And so things like there's a certain type of that most of the cryptogra- cryptography that's used today will be completely useless in a quantum world. Because the computer will be able to churn through every permutation and combination of what it could be and figure it out very quickly. Uh, and so, like, so drug discovery, you know, combing the genome, looking through all this data will be completely accelerated uh, in, in a post-quantum world. I mean, and we're still years out from that. You know, listening to you speak, like, just going back to the MS one, um, you know, that alone is like just such a big motivator to wake up and get out of bed in the morning. You know, the, the potential that you could be working on something that could literally change millions of lives. I didn't want the cure for cancer to die in someone's lab somewhere. And it's I could see how easily it would happen. So on that point, Julie, how, how do we take this technology transfer 
concept and reality that you live and move and breathe in? And how do we make it more accessible to the masses? One of the challenges with research that that we're we're actually working actively to to shift this a little bit is that um, there's something called basic and applied research. Well, basic research is uh, I you know people come up with these crazy ideas and then it actually turns into something, and that that's how you know most of our inventions have have evolved, right? Is it the basic research? Somebody's just looking at a property of something and they discover that this could could cure something. And so we want to continue to do the basic, but, but they don't always know what the application is for something that they've discovered. And so that's where that translation needs to come. So we're, we're trying number one, to educate our researchers to think about translation and to think about, um, go out and look at the markets, look at what people need, look at what the problems are and see how, what they're doing could either be could they pivot to meet a need in the in the community or in the world to solve world hunger? You know, is there something they could they could pivot or or can they take their research in a direction that might lend itself towards a real problem in, in society that we need to, to solve? So it's it's both educating the and the investigators, the the inventors, um, and then translating. You know, you I don't know if you've ever combed the patent database, knowing you, Claire. It wouldn't surprise me if you have. Um, I have. <laughs> Miss I see, I knew it. <laughs> there are billions of dollars of research results. And I will tell you, in some ways, you have to really wade through a bunch of things that maybe aren't applicable or don't have a use, or they might have a use, but it's not economically feasible to de- to the, the cost to develop it and get it to the market. You won't recoup and selling it, you know, so that's the kind of the business dynamics of a lot of this stuff. But if you're curious, it's so easy to Google tech transfer, Google federal labs consortium. There is a federal labs consortium where you can see all of the technologies. There's a database of technologies that you're interested in. You could just insert a search term and it will come up with things. And don't be discouraged if you don't understand half of it, because that you can always call the inventor. I mean, that's one of the things that when we are call the university and they can connect you with the inventor, if you have questions, uh, that's one of the things that we do is we help answer those questions. We help to translate as best we can uh, an invention into what its possible uses are. And so those tech transfer offices would, would love to hear from people, especially those who are serious about, you know, I really would love to start a company. I'm interested in this space but I don't have any technology. You might be able to find it at a university or federal lab. If there was ever a message that I wanted to go and stand on top of a building and shout out to the world, it's this message that there are actually solutions out there, but there's just not enough people bringing it to market um, and and actively working with people, you know, because academia and and the actual bringing to market of of a solution are two such different skill sets that it's very very rare that you have that all in one person and so it's so critical that you know creative more business minded people um, that have that bent to to market and bring things to market are, are matched up better with people who are quietly in the background researching away and, and doing their thing you know because it, it just it's a more powerful team Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. We That's one of the things we're always looking for. We've got a faculty who gets a, a, a company to a certain point, but then they don't want to be the CEO. They want to be the chief science officer. They want to keep doing their research and they need 
business folks who can come in and and they'll help you with the technology. You don't have to st- you don't have to understand everything, um, yeah. but but you have to understand the market. If you understand the market and the problem you're trying to solve, and you can go out and communicate with those folks and and go help raise money and or sign customers, they need that. That's the kind of thing that they need. Judy, you have a soft spot for working mothers. Um, having recently become one, I get it now more than I ever did before. And you've even written a book about entrepreneurial parenting. Right now, I think in the current environment that we're in, women really need to be in the limelight in terms of how work needs to evolve and change to meet the demand that is being placed on them. Talk to me a little bit about your passion. Yeah, I mean, well, so it was interesting. So my book, when I started my company, there were very few role models of CEOs or business owners who were mothers. And it's not that they weren't out there, but they just didn't talk about their families because it was considered to be, oh, they're not serious about, you can't be serious about business and serious about owning a company. And so I started, my first foray was I started a column in Enterprising Women magazine that was called Serious Mom, Serious Business. And so, you know, one of the reasons that I wrote the book is to say, you know what, you can be serious about both. And in fact, as you mentioned, it's not just a nice thing to have right now. It is an imperative that we have um, all hands on deck. You know, we need access to all good ideas. You know, those who are willing to and able to work, we need to, we need your ideas. We need your, your efforts in here. Women often have a very different approach uh, to transformational leadership, um, looking at things more collaboratively versus kind of top down. Uh, and I think that's as, you know, even though the world from travel has shut down a little bit in this time, it's not going to always be like this. And, and the borders will open up again. And, and even though the physical borders are closed, we have digital, we, we don't have digital borders. We do need to fix the digital divide because we do indeed have a digital divide. And if every child needs access to, you know, to technology so that they can at least function in this world. And I, I used to tell my daughters this. I said, look, I don't, you don't need to be a programmer just like me, but you need to understand technology because that is, you're, it's very difficult to get away from it in anything. For me, the beautiful possibility of it is, and, and this actually ties back to your book, one of the points that um, I, because I read the book before I was a mom, and I remember very clearly you saying in the book in multiple various ways it was kind of like a repeat pattern was that being a parent actually made you a better entrepreneur because parenting was actually teaching you how to solve problems. And I I understood it at an intellectual level when I read it in the book, but living and breathing it for the last eight months, you know, like, like he's a toddler and he's just so flipping difficult sometimes. And I'm just like, how how is it possible that it's so hard to please you and then you know i kind of like flip my mind and i'm like but this is life this this is what i deal with in business every day you know and and as i'm learning to navigate him and his stubbornness um and his little growing humanity i'm i'm realizing and i'm learning how to be a better leader and how to be a better business owner and I think that for me is what the beautiful possibility of our current situation that we find ourselves in is that we're actually breeding a whole bunch of better workers, 
better employees, better leaders, um, because we're being forced to actually be more human in the way we're interacting with each other. And that's the piece that excites me about this. In all of this chaos that we're experiencing, in all of this like upheaval, I think there's going to be some really beautiful upsides that come out of it. I totally agree. And, you know, one of the things I've always been fascinated with is that a true entrepreneur builds something that's bigger than themselves, right? It can't be about you because then it's limited by your capabilities and, and your capacity. Just like raising a child, you give them roots and wings, but but ultimately your goal is to have them launch and be bigger than you. And so that's, I think, one of the most beautiful parallels as I, now my daughters have our have or are launching um, is watching them spread their wings and grow. And it was the same with my business. It was um, realizing that I was operationally the most expendable person in my business meant that I did something right, actually. Judy, I can carry on having this conversation for many hours with you, but we need to wrap it up. And so the last question that I want us to close out with is, is one that I know is very near and dear to not only your and I's hearts, but Doug's hearts as well, because this is woven into the fabric of him and Tracy's life, is global economic development. It's This is the piece of your work that's actually the most obscure. Like if you go and do research about you and all that you do, you don't really see this. And I think it's one of the most critical and beautiful pieces of your life and, and what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Talk to us a little bit about why economic development, particularly in developing countries, is so critical right now. One of the things that I, I always say is that innovation and good ideas, they don't know any geographic or demographic boundaries, right? I mean, it's the, the best ideas come from just looking at two very disparate things and putting them together. It doesn't require you to have a PhD or even a degree to come up with a brilliant idea. So who are, who's to say that, that there's not, there's, in fact, I know there are great ideas in developing countries that just don't have a way to get out or they just don't even know that this is something that's possible for them. And so I've always, starting, it's been a long time, starting back, uh, especially with women, but I've done women's and men's programs as well, um, all over the Middle East, some in Africa, Europe, uh, just to try and bring, um, we were setting up a tech transfer office in Armenia, trying to help them set up tech transfer, um, because these ideas, they're everywhere. And in fact, the fewer resources you have, the more innovative you have to be. So I, I'm convinced there's innovations in developing countries that we could use in the rest of the world if we could only um, help to discover them and help them to bring them out. And so, yes, this has always been uh, a passion of mine. I love to travel internationally. I love meeting new people and seeing new things. And the more that I travel, the more that I see the commonalities in humanity, as well as the differences. And um, those are, we celebrate those. And that's where true innovation comes from, is a diversity of thought. Mm. Completely. I, Julie, as you know, I, you know, serve as a regional board member for UNICEF and the program that's exciting me the most right now that um, one of the programs that UNICEF is working on is they've essentially taken, um, I mean, and you live and breathe this all the day, all day long, is that lean startup methodology and that like, 
um, you know, just like bare bones MVP thinking, you know, what's the minimum viable solution that we can get to you? And they've basically um, packaged it up into like a field kit that UNICEF workers can literally, it's light, they can carry it onto their back, on their backs and go into these very, very rural places across the globe. And the whole idea behind the kit is they actually get the children in these rural places to brainstorm solutions to their own problems with the very limited resources that they have right there. So they're not only teaching these kids critical future work skills that will make them accessible to the world in the form of design thinking and you know solution question query design type of skills like that but they're actually teaching them that your solution doesn't lie in something that America's going to produce or you know China's going to produce for you it's your solution is right yeah but you just have to design it and develop it and you can and I just I'm so passionate about that project for that exact reason because that's what you're saying it's you know the ideas are there it's about bringing them to life Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that work. That that just is it. That gives me chills. It makes me smile. Exactly. Julie, thank you so much for your time today. Let's do this again sometime soon. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Julie, yeah, thank you also from my side, from the southern tip of Africa. Very nice to meet you and spend some time with you. Nice to meet you too. And there you have it. The future of work through the eyes of an innovation officer. If you want to get involved in the future of work today, but you don't have any tech, you now know where to find some. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it of value, please pop back for more top of mind conversations. Just a reminder for more information about Wanda and the integration services they supply, you can visit their website. That's WNDYR.com. And so from me, Doug Folks and Chaos and Rocket Fuel, stay safe and we'll see you soon.